Hi, welcome to Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees and lots of other things that we found out about becoming a lawyer and the people that do. Hi, I'm Bridget. In our previous episode, we spoke to Carly Green, who is a barrister employed by the Crown Prosecution Service in Leeds. She told us about the amazing experience she's been getting prosecuting cases in the criminal courts. Today, we're crossing the courtroom floor, and I'm speaking to Carly Alaikogu from Doughty Street Chambers in London to find out what life is like as a self-employed criminal defence barrister and woman working at the bar. You're a criminal barrister working in a set in London and you work in very serious and kind of complex cases, I imagine, involving sex offences, drug trafficking, other serious criminal offences. You're an entrepreneur, you're a designer. So effectively, you're a multitasker, a phenomenal multitasker. How do you manage all of these aspects of your career? With difficulty, because I know I get asked about this from time to time. How do you manage to run a practice and how do you manage to run a business? And I think it would be false to say that it is easy and that I managed to fit in, you know, an hour's worth of yoga and supplements in the morning, followed by several (laughs) hours of meditation in the evening. That's not the way it works. I think part of the reason I'm able to do it is because I don't have children and I, and I try and use my time as efficiently and effectively as I can. For example, when my my father-in-law wasn't very well last year. I had several Zoom calls to do. And at that point I was making, you know, batch cooking moussaka to send over to him while listening to like these Zoom calls. And, you know, when I'm traveling somewhere, I'll try to be answering people's emails. Um, and it's just, it's a juggling act like everyone, but I do it because I care about the things that I am, that I'm doing. And, and I make it work. If we talk about your brand, so in, I think it was June 2020, you launched what is, I understand, the first legal outfitter specializing in, in courtwear for women. Well, well, firstly, congratulations. But what was your inspiration? <laughs> My family has always been in, in the rag trade. Um, in, you know, it's, not, it's sort of an unattractive word for it, but that's the word that I grew up with. The rag trade It's the clothing business. I spent many years trying to get into the bar. And um, I finally started my pupillage in September 2015. And I started with two other male pupils. And the way pupillage works is that you have your first six months and you are shadowing your um, pupil supervisor. And that's like another barrister? In chambers, like a yeah. senior barrister? Exactly. So you, you, you'll be given a series of pupil supervisors and that you'll, you'll fly that follow them around like an apprentice, helping them out and observing. And that's the first six months of your pupillage. And then the second six months, you are on your feet representing people, um, in court. And so as I started coming up to my second six months, I wanted to buy myself a shirt because I wanted to look the part. So basically, a lot of women wore these collarettes and wear these collarettes and they come in either sort of plain or a bit of lace. And when I started, I didn't want to just have collarettes. I, I thought my male peers wear shirts and I thought they looked terribly smart. And so I wanted to, to look the part. Um, but when I went to the legal outfitters to uh, to buy one it was it was so expensive and there wasn't a great selection for the women but there was a greater one for the men and i noticed the fit 
fit like a sort of school shirt. It didn't, it didn't taper in to fit a woman's body the way sort of fashion shirts do. And I just remember, I suppose it's the sort of clothing industry background has made me think this could be improved so much. As someone who, it, it took a long time to get to that point where I could have that wig on my head and where I could be in that position to represent someone. And so it, Every time I put it on, it means something to me. And as a woman at the bar who works alongside my male colleagues, I never, ever wanted to feel less than them because I work as hard as them and I offer as much as them. And so I never wanted to look or feel less than them. And so having clothing that is of equal quality to them was important to me. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible when you think that it took until 2020 to have something that was tapered to women's bodies when there are so many women graduating from law and and entering the profession. A lot of aspects, I think, of being at the bar are maybe archaic is the wrong word. It might be too pejorative a word, but they seem, even the language of the bar seems a little closed. So things like being called to the bar. So I understand you were called to the bar. I think this is right in 2013. Yes. What does that mean? It sounds like there was a trumpet kind of playing and brought you into chambers. What, like, where does that come from? Yeah. <laughs> Probably felt that way. I don't know where the term itself actually comes from, but it is, it's something essentially you are invited to do. To be a member of the bar is to have a right of audience to address the court, which not everyone has. As a member of the public, you don't necessarily you don't have the right to stand up and and advocate on behalf of another and so there is a formality about it and I suppose this archaic language that we still use reflects the solemnity of that and I think that's part of the reason that we've kept a lot of the traditions and we've kept a lot of the uh, the uniform that we still wear because you're reflecting the formality of these proceedings. No, absolutely. And I mean, if we think about your role at the criminal bar, as you say, a big responsibility, how do you kind of balance the, I imagine, sort of stress, the exhilaration, and also the workload of of being at the criminal bar and dealing with cases that I imagine potentially could result in custodial sentences? Well-being at the bar is something that I think there are more efforts to try and emphasise on and to try and help barristers and not just barristers but solicitors and anyone in the legal profession really to try and and self-care a bit more because I think the legal profession suffers from the same malady as other professions such as firefighters and soldiers and and, and the police force and the, and the medical profession as well. Well, there's, there's a sort of expectation, I think, that if you're going to go into it, then you just need to be able to handle it. And if you somehow struggle to handle it, then this, it reflects somehow your inadequacy or your inability to handle it. But I think that's such a, a sort of dangerous way of thinking because it sort of results in people burning out. It results in people leaving the profession. It results in people sort of trudging on in misery as opposed to being their best selves and then bringing their best selves to work. And I think the bar has not always been very good at at helping people to balance their workload 
and to also deal with issues like secondary trauma from dealing with difficult cases and things like that. I mean, having some gallows humour helps. There's a lot of gallows humour, but also sort of trying to separate yourself from your client's predicament and your life. It gets a little easier, but every so often there will be cases that really do affect you. And and it it hangs heavy, but you have to be able to pick yourself up and to carry on because you're no good to anyone if you don't. I had an experience when I was an intern at a community legal centre in Australia where I studied law and, and trained to become a lawyer. I was working by myself at the front desk of this community legal centre very under-resourced centre and not a, not a trained lawyer yet at this stage, studying law, interested in, in criminal law and human rights law. And a man came in, a really old man, and said, I need legal advice. And I sat him down. We always had to ask people where they lived so we could determine if they were in our catchment area for sort of funding purposes. And he told me he lived at Central Train Station, which is the biggest train, train station in Sydney, which absolutely broke my heart. He sat down and... And I said, great, well, you know, I'll get you a cup of tea and could you give me your name? We need to also look at our conflicts database. When I put his name in to the database, I realised he was on the serious sexual offenders register. And I was there by myself as a young woman, not a trained lawyer, and also not trained in how to deal with those situations because you don't get a lot of training. It sort of reminded me of that story around some of the issues of perhaps well-being and also support that I imagine for you, you, you know, you reach out to other peers in your chambers or across the profession. Do you sort of rely on each other for support in circumstances where you feel, like you said, you might not have, I don't know, the support of the profession as a whole or there's not the training or the well-being emphasis? It's extremely collegiate. It's extremely collegiate. That's that's part of the beauty of the bar, though. You can walk into an advocate room, never have met anyone before, but say, walk up to someone and say, oh, I've got a bit of a dodgy one this morning. What do you think of this? Mm, And they will help you and they will help you. Um, And that's that's a beautiful thing. With regard to sort of the example you gave, I mean, I I can totally sympathise. It is an absolute baptism of fire when you start. But part of what I love about it is this very human aspect, because even though your client in that instance had that on his record, he was still a human being. He was still a human being who was suffering in front of you and he needed help. And what gives me comfort is when I'm dealing with a difficult case or a sad case, I like being in a position to sort of, on a very human level, try and assist them as much as I can and to be sympathetic and knowing that I've done that for that person and tried to help them to the best of my ability is a personal comfort because they haven't just been turned away. They've got some help. When I first started out, before I got to the bar, I did an amicus internship and went to Mississippi for six months and was doing mitigation investigation on capital cases. So in the US, there are two stages to a capital trial. There's the guilt-innocent phase. And if the person is um, convicted, then there's the sentencing phase where the prosecution will put forward aggravators why the person should get death and the defence will put forward mitigation evidence why the person should get Uh, life as opposed to the death penalty. And so mitigation investigation involves going into that person's life, getting their educational records, contacting friends and family and trying to work out 
what is in this person's background that may have resulted in them being in this situation. And, you know, when when you sort of think about it like that, we are all products of our environment. No, I don't think anyone starts off bad. And I often say to my clients, everyone screws up sometimes. We're just going to fix it. And, and that's the truth. I will come to you if and when I commit a crime. I enjoy uh, your, <laughs> yeah. em- your empathy and optimism is, is incredibly inspiring. Um, if we can kind of go back, I mean, you talked about your role at the death penalty. Um, it was, a, was it called Amicus? Amicus, yes. Amicus. You were working there, I imagine, sim- similar to the work that we've talked about on some really tough cases. What then led you to come back to London, where, obviously where you're from, and then apply for pupillage as a barrister? So it took me a long time to build up the confidence to go for uh, the bar. The bar is notoriously competitive. I didn't get it straight away. I didn't get it straight away. You know, I, I took four goes and I got it on my fourth go. I got two two offers on my fourth go. But it was at the point where I, I was going to stop because I thought I'm not going to tie my self-esteem to this process. The value I have to the workforce is not is not reflected on whether or not I succeed as a barrister. And there has to come a point where I have to draw a line on it. And I think going into the interviews with that sort of mindset, like I wasn't going to do it anymore. I was going to give it 110% that last time. And if it wasn't good enough, then they could, you know, shove it. Uh, (laughs) um, And I think that's probably what made the difference. I also spent four years just really working at it, really like applying, working out where my weaknesses were, where were my strengths, what did I need to do? And I I do quite a lot of talks um, to student groups. And what I often say to them is, Life is, is a race where we're not all starting at the same position. There will be some of you who have financial backing and are therefore able to do a lot of unpaid internships. There'll be some of you who are highly connected. There'll be some of you who, you know, have racial biases against you. There'll be some, you know, there, there's, there's all sorts of different factors that mean that we don't all start at the same point, but it is still a race worth running because if you can work out where it is you need to be, and then what it is you need to get there and then apply yourself to how you can get those things. It may take time, but I think then at least you've got a strategy. You're not simply throwing it up to chance or, or you know, doing things in a random fashion. So a lot of what I did was, you know, maybe not necessarily textbook. I don't come from a legal background. I was the first person in my family to go to university. I come from, you know, an immigrant family. Um, I had a 2-1, not from Oxbridge. Hadn't won an advocacy competition in my life. And I think that a lot of people think that you have to have all those things in order to succeed. But it is possible not to. But the type of thing that I would do is I went to like I joined legal societies and then went to their Christmas parties to like go and chat to people in the chambers I wanted to be at. And then I would, you know, I got part time jobs with those barristers and and, and made it work. And I, I worked in a pub and volunteered at Reprieve until I could get a, a, a paid job there. And at one point I was doing sort of three jobs at once. And by the end of that, my CV was very good, but I, I was building it constantly. And I sort of made up for my gaps there. Your honesty is so invaluable because people don't talk about that 
I think when you enter the profession or when you're trying to enter the profession. And I mean, you talked earlier about challenges and absolutely, I think everyone in their own way will face some challenge of accessing what can be quite a closed profession. I imagine also being a woman is something that, I mean, hopefully increasingly is not seen as a barrier, but still there are not that many women at the top of the profession. If you look at the list of of silks, if you look at the judiciary, have you ever found being a woman to be a challenge in the profession? And what advice would you give, I guess, to young women who think, ooh, it doesn't sound perhaps as friendly as, as other professions? The, the, the bar, you know, there are different areas of law and some of them have more women in them than others. And I think part of the big difficulty with the self-employed bar, and I'm going to talk more specifically about the criminal bar because that's the one I know the most about, the difficulty of that is the lifestyle of the bar and the way in which the work operates. There are, I think, not a lot of women right at the top of the profession because a lot of them struggle to make the criminal bar in particularly work with um, having a family. Part of the reason for that, as I said, is because of the sort of lifestyle. Now, if I can give you an example, sort of a rough pressy of, of, of the way it works. So, when you do your first six, sorry, your second six, you start working for solicitors and you start building a rapport with solicitors, hoping that they will then come to instruct you regularly on ever more serious work. This is at the end, sorry, Carla, of your first year, that sort of mandatory training pupillage year. Yeah. So I'm yeah. starting you really at the beginning to give you an idea of an idea of what life at the criminal bar is like. So you, you, you go on your feet and you start doing sort of running around the magistrate's court, so the lower court, and you start doing work for solicitors. And over time, you build up your practice to start doing ever more serious cases, instructed by solicitors who trust you because they know you. Okay. And then as a self-employed barrister, you build up a head of steam of cases and work. As a self-employed barrister, your income is not fixed because it depends on the cases that you bill and then the cases that are paid. And there can be a great lag in what is paid. So some months you have feast and some months you have famine. So if you go on holiday for two weeks or a month, let's say, those are two weeks or a month that you are not billing and you will receive your income from some months previously. But then some months down the line, you may you may struggle because you haven't billed for those weeks. That is the sort of issue to do with building up your practice. Now, the, the lifestyle of a criminal bar it works this way. If you're not instructed in a trial, um, you will get your instructions the night before, often at around five o'clock, and then you will have to prepare your case that evening and then get sent to court in the morning. And that court can be, you know, almost anywhere. So it can involve a great deal of travel. It's not unheard of to have to travel two hours up north when you live in the south or to have to um, go from sort of North London down to Sussex uh, or vice versa in a day. And you'll have to prepare these cases overnight. And then once that day is done, you will then get your instructions for the next day to then prepare overnight. The schedule is not always that relentless, but it can be. And when you're in a trial, 
you are consumed with that case because there may be, you have to prepare it fully, know that case inside and out. And then there may be issues that arise during the day that you have to deal with overnight, a legal point or further evidence that is carried out. And you've got to work to fulfill that, to do the work on that case. With regard to the way that trials are scheduled, some cases are fixed in your diary and they will come in as you expect, but there's also something called warned list cases. So they can come in any time within a two-week period. So you may be told on, on Wednesday at five that your trial has come in and you've got to prep your trial going forward. So any plans that you had to meet your friend on Thursday or, or Wednesday night are going to be shot to pieces. Now, the difficulty with people having families is if you go away for maternity leave, your great fear is that your solicitors who you have built up over your over that period will forget you and instruct someone else. And then when you come back, you have to sort of build those relationships back up again. There's also a fear that you, well, not necessarily a fear, but a reality that you become quite quickly de-skilled in this job because the law, the procedures, things change quite quickly. And often it's also to do with confidence as well. Your confidence when you're an advocate, when you're doing it day to day to day, you're confident in in the cases that you're presented and the advocacy that you do. Um, But if you're not doing it every day, then you may... Mm. Like muscle memory, confidence. I imagine. Exa- you have to precisely. flex the muscle. Yeah. Precisely. So there's that. But then also, if you do have a young family, because of the schedule of the criminal bar, it's it's very difficult if you've got, you know, your child's school play that evening or, or something like that, to be able to manage it all. And that is why I think there is a big problem trying to retain women at the bar because however much we've progressed and we are getting better, there is still a disproportionate caring uh, burden on women rather than men. And so that's why I think traditionally men have been able to rise up in the ranks because women have been their main carers at home and they haven't had to worry about that stuff. But a woman trying to do both, it's not impossible Someone, but it is a challenge. No, totally. And I mean, I don't want to obviously deter anyone from still, you know, women particularly from pursuing these routes, but the challenges that, that you've identified are certainly uh, similar to those that I've heard. You know, some of my, my friends from law school who have kids and are at the bar, they talk about access to childcare, that there aren't, you know, dedicated services physically at the bar. So in they should be hopefully in the future access to childcare that is physically closer to where you work, uh, shared parental leave schemes to encourage and assist men as well to take absolutely leave. Yeah. I, d- I don't want to deter any women. I don't want to deter any women from, from considering the bar as an option. It is a deeply fulfilling career and it, it, it brings enormous joy and, and, and fulfillment. It's challenging. Um, but it is definitely a route worth pursuing if you're interested. There are ways of navigating it. Sometimes you can go in-house for a period. You can go into comments. You can have a chat with your clerks to try and limit your number of cases. You know, there, there are, you can take a sabbatical and then it is scary coming back, but you know, you have to bite the bullet and, 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 and do it. It is frightening to put yourself out there. But why not you? Why not you? And uh, I think often men have this sort of innate confidence and women will second guess themselves so much more. And I, and I just sort of think to myself, what, what would you do if you, if, you, if you weren't frightened, you know? 
And sometimes when I say to my sister, when she's feeling a bit, you know, a bit wibbly, I say to her, do you ever look at someone and just think, how has this idiot managed to get there? And then I just think if this idiot's managed to get there, I may be a bit of an idiot. So I may manage to get there as well. That was barrister and entrepreneur Carlia Lykirku. And I've got my colleague Georgie Yates with me here. Hello, Georgie. Hello, Bridget. How are you? I'm good. Now, you've listened to that conversation with Carlia. She talked a lot about, in really honest terms, about how she balances her busy life mm-hmm. at the bar and as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. What did you take away from, from that incredible honesty? I think I find nothing, nothing gives me like, not good vibes like somebody trying to front something being easy that is clearly very hard and she was mm. really honest about the fact that you know she's a very busy woman who's doing lots of things and I find that like very refreshing um, and I really really enjoyed listening to it. I remember at uni some some people would say oh I haven't really studied hard for these oh, exams at all. Yes I know. And get HDs and you'd think I think you did study hard. Exactly. And it is, it, yeah, and it is, you're right, it is refreshing to hear someone who has achieved a lot talk honestly about failure and having to apply, let's say, for pupillage mm-hmm. a few times mm-hmm. yeah. and then succeeding but being honest about the hard work that it took to get there. Absolutely, yeah, and I also think it's really important in terms of thinking about people thinking about what kind of lifestyle they want. Like I don't mm. think I'm going mm. to be going for the self-employed bar anytime soon because that's not the sort of lifestyle I want. You know, I don't want to have to cancel my Thursday night dinner with my friends. I like it. No, neither. Um, <laughs> yeah. like, and so I think yeah. it's good to kind of know these things and know what you're getting yourself into. I think that's right. And she also talked a lot about um, well-being and self-care in the profession. And I liked the way she talked about kind of collegiality and relying on colleagues for a lot of that kind of well-being. Do, do you have any experience of that? And what do you do for kind of a bit of well-being in the profession <laughs> away from work? Uh, I think what she said about that, like your colleagues really making it and being able to go and talk to somebody on a difficult day is so true. Like having lovely colleagues is absolutely game changing. And kind of, I think I move around lots of different teams within the BBC. So I've done placements within like maybe five teams at this point. And they're all, to be honest, they've all been lovely. Who is your favourite? Uh, I could not possibly No, don't comment. answer that. <laughs> don't answer that. Um, but there's, kind of, there's very different vibes in different teams. But all of them have been incredibly supportive and actually like having, being able to go and ask a question or be honest when you're having mm. a really bad time. I think it's so important. The other thing that I loved that she said was about like, what would you do if you were frightened like what a great question what would I do if I wasn't frightened because like I'm still scared like I'm still nervous all the time and I just like that is fantastic and I think it's all I've got two sisters as well and she talked about the fact that she was talking to her sisters and it it, like gave me all the warm feelings inside when she talked about that (laughs) (laughs) if you're interested in becoming a barrister I'd really recommend listening to the very practical conversation we had with Daisy Mortimer from the Inner Temple And if you think the challenges of being self-employed aren't for you, remember there are lots of careers for employed barristers like our previous guest, Carly Green. We posted some really useful links in the show notes for that episode. And maybe catch up on our chat with planning barrister Hashi Muhammad. His work's all about building developments and the environment and frankly couldn't be more different from Carlia and Carly's life of crime. You can find more episodes on Apple, 
Spotify, Acast, and everywhere you find good podcasts. Make sure to like, review, and subscribe so you don't miss out on our new episodes. You can find us on Instagram. Just search for Not All Lawyers Pod and use the hashtag Not All Lawyers. And please do get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your questions and comments. This has been Not All Lawyers Have Law Degrees from the BBC's legal team.